you have your Bibles with you, if you've got a phone, an app with it, be Ecclesiastes 3. We'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 8. And I know you're probably excited. We are finishing chapter, or sorry, uh, verse 8. We've made it. Verse 1 all the way to 8. It's been uh, definitely one of those that are extremely beneficial, not only for me in prepping these sermons, going verse by verse, but hopefully you have gleaned much for, uh, from Christ as well as we've worked slowly through these verses. If you found your spot, if you please stand for the reading of Christ's word this morning. Again, we'll be at verse 1 and we'll go to verse 8. May you hear the word of Christ this morning. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast, us, cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again that we can be a people who gather around your word. For your word is life. It, is, it sustains and nurtures our souls. And so, Father, may you work your wise work through me this morning as I preach your word. And Lord willing, the preparation for this time has been glorifying to you. So now use your servant to speak your wise words for this day so that we might be a people who live out your wisdom. We thank you for the matter that we can come together as your church and to worship Christ through song and sermon and so, Lord, speak at this time. Open our ears and our hearts. We offer these things in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, our Sunday school group uh, started landing the plane on the lesson that Miss Jenny was teaching. And we began this conversation really about what does Old Testament war look like? You know, why in the world does it happen? And you know, what does it mean for us to be Christians today, to live out Christ's peace, to live out Christ's love, knowing that these events happened in the Old Testament? And it was really, honestly, it was a lively discussion and being able to hear from others a perspective that I think I had already been affirmed, and it's that this is a difficult topic. To be able to wrestle with who God is in the Old Testament and the couple of commands that we have from him uh, in the Old Testament to go into a nation and to slaughter them and to remove them from this land, how does that fit into his overall picture of redemption and how does that affect us today as God's people? That's a very difficult topic. But it's one that we need to, every once in a while, go back and examine. And how we should think about it. 
because this is one of the discussions that I've heard over the years of why people wrestle with who Christ is, who God is, because they don't want anything to do with that God, but they love a lot of what Jesus says. Well, church, they're one and the same God. It's not as if we have one God over here and a new God over here. It's the one and the same God. It's just that he becomes incarnate. He takes on human flesh in the New Testament. And he calls us to live out radically ordinary lives, living out his gospel. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. With a specific focus to verse 8, as we read a minute ago, a time for war and a time for peace. If you look at all the verses up to that point, you can see that they're all verbs. A time to be born, to die, to plant, to pluck up what is planted, to kill, to heal, to, breathe, uh, to break down, to build up, and you can keep going down the list. These are all verbs, action words, as we say in the seventh grade. These are action words. But then you get to the eighth verse and you notice something pretty distinct. Not action words. A time for war and a time for peace. So we can quickly see that there's something different happening in this eighth verse. If you read from the King James Version, you might see it says a, a time of war or a time of peace. But regardless, there's no verb there. It's calling us to think and to reflect and to look at these nouns, not verbs. So it might be that the writer is teaching us of how to think about what God does in war, what God does in peace. And so that becomes sort of the trajectory that we're looking at today. We don't have to go very far uh, in our lives, we can go to the 5, 6, 10 o'clock news. We can open up the newspaper every day to see that there's plenty of violence in the world. We do not have to be convinced that there is violence. We see it all the time. We see it in the middle school. We see it at high school, the elementary school. We see it and hear about it in homes. You do not have to be convinced that violence is a reality in the world in which we live and there's no place across the globe where violence does not happen. It is global. It's in every street, every home, every territory, every land. It is everywhere. But we do need the scriptures to teach us and equip us of how we can live out the victory of Christ in this kind of violent world in which we lived. And as you can see from the sermon title that's give, given on your bulletin of how we can live gently in a violent world. So as we begin this sermon this morning, I think there are several questions that you might have in your head. I don't want to uh, impose those on you, but you've probably asked these before. Well, pastor, didn't Israel fight in war with other nations in the Hebrew scriptures? Didn't even God command Israel to fight and kill others? at that time, or maybe even lastly, what prevents the church today from acting out this same type of violence? I'm glad you've asked such great questions because we're going to be looking at them this morning. But before I begin answering some of these questions as we see in the scriptures, let me take a few minutes to be extremely clear about some points that have to be addressed and talked about. The first is that the Old Testament 
hear me out. The Old Testament does not depict an angry, an evil, or war-bent God, whereas the New Testament displays a loving, gentle, and generous God. We do not have two different gods, church. This is probably one of the greatest misreadings of the Old Testament. No doubt one of the greatest misreadings of the Old Testament because you can go to those times where God commands war like in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua or even possible times where there seems to be war in the prophets. Those aren't two different gods. You don't have an angry, evil God over here and a loving, gentle God over here in the New Testament. So how do we even come to the conclusion that these two different testaments portraying two different gods, one evil, one loving. Uh, as I've seen over the years, there's a couple of reasons. There are many, but there are a couple of reasons why we even get to that conclusion that there are two different gods. First, generally speaking, the American church has never been taught how to read the Old Testament. Generally speaking. And don't hear me as condemning the American church. That's not what I'm doing. It's just that they've never been taught how to read closely and clearly to what's going on. And you know the prime reason why they haven't been taught that? Because secondly of people like me, pastors, we have not equipped you. And I am sorry for that. We have not equipped you well to read the Old Testament with precision but hopefully we can put both of those aside today and address a very difficult topic such as Old Testament war and what it means to live gently as a Christian. That hopefully I can give you tips and tools to be able to read these parts of Scripture well and to understand what is happening so that we can answer the very difficult questions for those who might be asking around us. And the last point I need to make is that as Paul reminds Timothy that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. Not some, not those other parts, and, not, and just these over here. He makes it very clear. All of Scripture is God-breathed. It is all inspired. And if that is the case, then even those very difficult passages about war and the commands of war matter and they are a part of the scriptures themselves so now with that said let's address these questions that we asked a few minutes ago and hopefully hopefully i can equip you to read the old testament with uh, more precision and clarity the first question and if i could remind us was this didn't israel fight in war with other countries and nations in the hebrew scriptures no doubt we can't overlook that. When some read the very difficult text in the Old Testament that you find in Deuteronomy and Joshua, God commands Israel to fight and to clear out a people from their promised land. Some will see this fighting as a, quote, holy war. You might hear holy war and you might think of the Muslim term jihad. Well, let me just go ahead and be very, very clear Holy war is not what's happening in the Old Testament. It is not jihad. That is a term that is very much located in the Muslim religion itself. And it is not something that we can carry from the Muslim religion and read into our Old Testament text. 
That is not holy war. And so we need to be very careful about how we even speak of what type of war is being presented in the Old Testament. You can actually go to a few scholars who introduce this term jihad and holy war and try to read the Old Testament in that way. One book in particular that greatly influenced scholarship but also many pastors across the globe for the past 100 years, 117 years to be exact, was by a, name, a man by the name of Frederick Schwally in his 1901 book, The Holy War in Ancient Israel. And so right there we immediately see the holy war in ancient Israel. But Schwally makes a very big mistake once it comes to studying any religion. You must be very careful in borrowing one religion's term in order to understand another religion. We can't do that. It typically causes many issues. For instance, jihad usually had two goals, twin goals in the Muslim faith. The conversion of non-Muslim individuals and the imposing of taxes on this non-Muslim people. The reality is, is that we don't see either one of those in the Old Testament. You don't have Israel trying to conquer this land to impose a religion on them and secondly, impose taxes on a people. That's not what you have. So it is most certainly not jihad. And if I can make one more clarification, there is a far difference between uh, what we refer to as classical Islam and radical Islam. Far different. Classical Islam does not teach uh, jihad as this aggressive military stance. Radical Islam does. So classical Islam sees jihad as a spiritual defense that one has and whereby somebody is spiritually trying to renew themselves before Allah, their God. So we cannot misinterpret Muslim friends of ours who we know that they're not aggressive in any manner, that might be completely faithful to their Muslim religion. And we take what we see on TV and impose it on their lives. We have to be very careful. Because you know what could be the case, church? We could see Westboro Baptist Church, if you're familiar with that church in Topeka, Kansas, who go out make sure that they protest as many military soldiers' funerals as possible, that yell at people in the middle of the streets of cities all across the nation. We would never want somebody to look at Westboro Baptist Church and say, that's what Hickory Grove is like. We would never want somebody to see us through the eyes of some other radical part of Christianity. So we have to do the same. We cannot see jihad as this aggressive force of military battle, we can see it only in the radical extremes of the Muslim faith, but not in classical forms. So we have to be very careful of reading that into their own religion. So back to my point. 
Once it comes to reading Israel's actions as a type of holy war, if holy war is meant to take, be taken as this offensive military initiative with the twin purpose of conversion of a people and a taxing of a people, we cannot find this anywhere in the pages of the Old Testament. Anywhere. So if we read the Old Testament closely, we'll see that Israel did not see themselves as living out or acting out in a holy war. In fact, what we see instead that it is Yahweh, God, who is the warrior. He is the one fighting on their behalf. And you see this in Psalm 18, 21, Psalm 46, 65. You see it in Lamentations 1 and 2. You see it all across the scriptures, the Old Testament, where Yahweh is the warrior who gets involved in war, and he's the one who renders it holy. It's not the people who are fighting on behalf of God. God is fighting on behalf of the people. So God, who alone is holy, is willing to participate in what is profane and wicked in order to bring about what is good. Second, Yahweh does command the Israelites to fight and kill thousands of Canaanites. We cannot overlook this, church. In order to establish his redemptive purposes for the world, but we need to clarify the type of command. And this is a big uh, point I want to make this morning. The type of command that Yahweh gives to Israel. And secondly, we need to figure out who these Canaanites were. This is sort of the heart of the message this morning. What type of command that Yahweh gives? And secondly, who were these Canaanites? First, the command that Yahweh gives to Israel is what we call an occasional command. An occasional command is a very specific order given to a historical and particular people at a certain time. I think you can hear the specifics of that. Certain people, specific time, specific place. That's an occasional command. It fits into that time and that place for that particular reason. So when Israel is not permitted or allowed to fight against other nations, which... Yahweh tells them, you cannot fight against all these other nations as you're going into this promised land. You cannot fight against Moab, Ammon, and Edom. You can't. There's only one particular people, and that's the Canaanites, Ammonites. No one else. So this warning was restricted to the land of Canaan itself. We cannot apply the commands of war as warrant and justification for us to drive out other nations and peoples. I'll get to this to the last part of the sermon, but what I'm trying to stress here is that an occasional command is utterly unique and unrepeatable. You don't see it again in the Old Testament. It was for a specific time and place, and that's it. Now that we've clarified what type of command, we need to figure out who are these Canaanites and Amorites. Canaanites and Amorites, contrary to some might think, were not an innocent people. In fact, when God first meets with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17, here is what he tells to, um, to Abraham. You will return, your people will return in the fourth generation and come back to this place. And the sin of the Amorites will be full and have reached its complete measure. What does this mean? 
once it comes to understand this full and complete measure, we have to realize first that he says in future generations, four generations from now, that God will wait until the sins of these people are full. Well, you need to think of a container. A container that is being filled with whatever its contents are. And then that container continues to get fuller and fuller and fuller to the point eventually that it spills out over the container itself. This is the picture that God is giving to Abraham. It is not yet full. So once it comes to the Amorites and the Canaanites, they were not definitely an innocent people. That their sin was accumulating, getting fuller and fuller, and God would not act in His holy justice until that time in which it was spilling over everywhere. So what we see from archaeological sites of the area of Canaan, urban uh, temples, household shrines, ritual utensils that they used, historical documents, and even the Bible itself, we see that the land of Canaan was infested with these things. The worship of created idols, human sacrifices, the slaughter of prisoners of war as an act of worship, very likely the ritual prostitution of women in their temples, and even infant sacrifices. And in fact, there are large, massive burial grounds to infants who were sacrificed for ritual worship. This is a small list of the historical practices that took place in the land of Canaan. And so when we hear God tell Abraham, in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure, we cannot overlook the long suffering of God to be patient and wait in order to bring about a particular type of judgment through war against this very these disgusting and disturbing practices of the Canaanites. So where does that leave us, church? Some final thoughts before I give us a few applications. First, certain Old Testament texts that we find in the book of Joshua, for example, do state that God commanded Joshua to carry out the slaughter of a people. We cannot overlook it. We cannot be naive and say that it never happened. We have to be able to address it. But that by itself, the command of war is not biblical warrant and justification for us to think that we can do this today. It's an occasional command for that time and that place for a particular reason. As John Piper has said it best, as the church of Jesus Christ, we may not imitate Israel here. The church is not God's instrument of judgment in the world. It is his instrument of spreading the gospel and reformation. As the church, we have no ethnic or geographic or political identity. We are aliens and exiles. God's dealing with Israel was unique in redemptive history. He chose them and ruled them as a demonstration of his holiness and justice in electing grace among the nations. And to the church... He says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would come fighting. Which this means, second, that we as God's church must be very careful in how we are interpreting and reading the Old Testament. 
As one scholar says, it is not that for Christians the New Testament corrects the Old Testament, but rather that Jesus Christ, God's true man, is testified in both of these testaments. He is the true and ultimate criterion of both testaments. The scripture that this scholar has in mind is Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus tells that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it. So Jesus is the key by which we are to read and understand the Old Testament. So here's my point. We cannot fully comprehend the gift of the Old Testament without traveling to Jesus as well. We have to read left to right, Old to New Testament, to see the full picture that God is giving in His redemptive plan, the full account of the Scriptures, and not just parts. So here's some takeaways that I see for us. The world in which we live is a violent one. Again, that's what I said at the very beginning. We don't have to be convinced of this. We see the Daily Globe over uh, the news programs that we watch, the newspapers that we read, the social media that we look at. We see plenty of political scandals, racial injustices, financial corruptions of corporations, fatherless homes. We see plenty of crime rates soaring, and we could keep going down the list of the violence we see. Jesus, then, isn't only the key to knowing how to read and understand the Old Testament, but he is also the way by which we are to model our lives. We are to imitate him, as Paul tells us. So through the violence of even the Roman crucifixion, the Father redeems the sins of the world through the gentle obedience of his beloved Son. As we're reminded by Jesus himself, the cross isn't just an act of justification for sinners, whereby the sins of us are paid in full through his death, but also the cross is a pattern, a paradigm by which we are to live our daily lives. Take up your cross and follow me. He invites us, right? Each of us needs to wrestle with this question. How then can the Spirit shape our hearts in Christ's own gentle obedience? We need to wrestle with that question. And secondly, another takeaway is this. We're all broken human beings, just like everyone else, which means we have enemies, we have conflicts, we have wars with others. Since Christ's death on a cross is the disarming of all violence itself, we are made friends with the Father. Then we can imitate and mimic Christ's life and Christ's cross as well. So let us end this morning with the words of Paul as he writes to the Roman church. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Live in harmony with others. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own right. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in all the sight. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Behold, beloved, never avenge yourselves ever, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil or even overcome evil. But rather, may you overcome evil with good. So once it comes to the invitation this morning, church, we are to be a people who live gently in a violent world. And as we said this morning in our Sunday school time, if there's one thing that the world needs is more joy. The world needs to see rejoicing. The world needs to see gentleness, a gentle obedience that we see in Christ. But also the other end of the conversation is if you want to know what it means to follow Christ, I would love to talk to you about this in a few minutes. Because what we find in the person of Christ is the gentle obedience, but also the holy love of God in His Son, where He takes on our wrath, the wrath that was deserved for us, and yet Jesus steps in the way and takes up that wrath and completes it, takes it, and takes it to the tomb. But on the third day, He rises and defeats that death and that sin he took the death that we rightly deserved. And I'm willing to bet that Christ is stirring some hearts into profess that faith that Christ is perfect in his sacrifice. And I want to learn more about what it means to follow after him. I would love to talk to you. But at the same time, we need to understand that the wrath that God has reserved for us has been taken up in its completed whole in the person of Christ. And that should lead us to joy and celebration that we didn't deserve. We deserve so much hell, but yet God took it on himself instead. So may we be a people of joy and gentleness this week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder that Christ is our joy, that Christ is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. that the conversations of Old Testament war are not easy. But may we be reminded that you are a God who establishes his purposes for holy justice and holy love. And may that always be in the forefront of our minds. That your ways are above and beyond what we can truly comprehend. And so, Lord, as we continue to discern of how to live out this holy obedience and this holy love before others. May you give us much wisdom because we need it. As your people, we are always trying to figure out how my Christ fits into this situation in this moment. So by your spirit, give us wisdom and insight. And may we be prepared as a people to offer the world a gentle justice a gentle obedience so that when they look at us, they see Christ. Because the world longs for, truly longs for a community in which they are accepted. But at the same time where we can be a people who point them to the God who loves them and who is willing to die for them. And so, Lord, may we be that people this week as we live out Christ's redemption before others. 
We offer these things in Christ's name. Amen.